Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed and what that means for the lawyers who do the work. On today's show, we're discussing family law with Stacey Phillips, a Los Angeles lawyer, and Bonnie Rabin, who practices in New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. I know the two of you started practicing probably at least 25 years after no-fault divorce was introduced, but I am curious, when you started, do you feel like just the life before that still influenced people's mindsets, and is it different now? Well, I think I probably have a surprise for you. New York was uh-huh. the last state to allow no-fault. It was just a few years ah. ago. So we were still faced with all of those claims, especially when people were experiencing adultery or something else where they felt like they wanted to be able to tell their story. So now that we have no fault and uh, they can't get an opportunity to tell a story that frankly judges don't really wanna hear, it's been a total revolution for us, but it's something I think Stacy's been experiencing for a long time. For as long as I've been practicing, we have had no fault. I've never experienced uh, practicing law in the fault era. But that doesn't mean, as Bonnie said, that people don't want to still tell their story. If somebody feels they've been wronged or they didn't want the divorce or he or she was a no good Nick and went off and did this, other than breach of fiduciary duty, um, sorry, we have to handle your emotions in a different way. Ah. On that note, I was curious, there's been a lot of talk about how much there's been a fair amount of acrimony in the country over the past decade. And are you seeing that in uh, family law court disputes as well? Are people fighting differently than maybe they did 10 or 15 years ago? I think it's gotten progressively worse. Uh, the legal profession, they used to call it the gentleman's profession, I and mean, certainly lots of women, but your word was your bond. Uh, that eroded a very long time ago. And I remember discussing it with somebody who the next day literally went on the bench because we had this very sad discussion. And I think that COVID has made it even worse. Cases that should be settling, and Bonnie and I just worked on a case together that really should have settled, and parts of it did, but parts not without a hearing on something that if the other side had settled would have done better than what the court ultimately ordered. Uh, Cases that, again, should have settled haven't. And I think that's because people want to try to control things that they feel they can control and they can't control COVID. So they're fighting over and it's a waste of money and it's bad for families That's my experience. And I believe, Bonnie, you've had the same because I know you're always in court. Yes, I I have. And I I made a joke recently that um, a cause of action for divorce should be political difference. Because one of the things that became accelerated, not just because of the political environment over the last few years, but you would really see deep differences in the way spouses looked at the world. And if they looked at the world that differently, it, it made it very difficult. Then you add COVID, where now they're not even separated all day. They're in the same house in, in lockdown for months and months and months. So that accelerated that situation. So what I found is that people talk about how much more divorce there is in the world since COVID, and that happens in China as well. But I say 
it's just taken five years, five years of divorces that would have occurred anyway and accelerated them into about a year and a half or two. And that's what we've been experiencing. Well, I have, I have been curious about that, especially for people who work a lot and are the big earner in a relationship and they can't go off to the city to their offices anymore. They have to sit in the same house with their kids and their spouse in the same respect, the spouse has to put up with them all day where maybe they would just send them off. And so I hadn't heard that. I mean, are you seeing more separations and divorces Absolutely. During the pandemic. Did it start back in 2020? Yes. It started immediately. And not only did it start immediately, but the courts were somewhat, if not closed, it was more difficult to get into court. So it made it even that much more complicated. So unless you had a domestic violence situation or something that was much more emergent, people were not only stuck and living together, but there was nothing that they could really do. And, um, you know, there are people who had a contract. You know, I go to work, you go to your office, we do this with the kids. They, they had a schedule. Suddenly they're in the house or in an apartment, a small apartment, together, no way out. <laughs> and, and maybe some of the reasons people stayed together is maybe they had another relationship, they had intimacies in other places. They couldn't even exercise or express that. So it really did um, agitate complicated situations. So in California, um, we've had an uptick in divorces. I don't think as much as Bonnie has experienced. I think people out here are waiting until things calm down and we keep waiting for things to calm down uh, before they you know, take the financial plunge. But uh, I've seen an uptick in domestic violence with people living together, um, just acting inappropriately. And again, not resolving cases, which makes it financially more difficult to separate. Even if uh, it's COVID, if you can separate and separate your monies, people are buying houses, uh, buying apartments. But if you can't resolve things, then people won't have the financial ability, to, even if they have lots of money, to go out and buy something new. And so they're stuck together. It's not good. So when a client has called you and just said, I am at the end of my rope, I can't handle this guy, gal, I don't know. What do you, what do you tell them as their counselor just to try and stay calm so that they're in a good position? For us, timing is usually everything because finances are affected. Um, you know, the um, divorce situations or matrimonial law, family law has always been very state centric in each state really has its own rules. And in New York, um, the commencement date is usually a very important date, the day you file for a summons for divorce, because that is a stop the clock. So people have to really think, what does it mean if I stop the clock now? It means everything he or she is earning is going to be separate property now, which is not true, for example, in Connecticut, where it's continued to be marital property until the divorce. So people have to be, when they call me, what, I have to really understand what are the variables in their personal, financial, custodial situation so I can help make a decision about what we do next. So in California, um, yes, that stop date is well, like what Bonnie says, but filing for divorce is not the only indicia uh, and may not be the indicia of a complete breakdown in the relationship where they're there's no chance of them getting back together. So, but you have to analyze uh, 
is this the right time? Are you close to 10 years? If you're the recipient spouse, you're not the earner. And you want to hit 10 years for purposes of um, spousal support or alimony, as they say in New York, because less than 10 years, it's approximately one half the length of the marriage, give or take. And if you hit 10 years, it could be for life, meaning till death or remarriage or registration as domestic partner. So um, it's not cookie cutter. You really need to think about it. I also um, have saved lots of marriages over the years where people call me and when they say the way you phrased it, Stephanie, I'm done. You know, I that's probably not the person, but I'll say, are you sure? Have you tried therapy? If you have children, that's really important. Um, if you don't have kids, I don't care as much about it. And over the years, a number of couples have gone to therapy and then stayed together and thanked me. And God bless. Well, and that was my next question. It's been such a roller coaster. Are you having clients that maybe have called you three times? I want to get divorced. Oh, I changed my mind. And then like a year later, nope, I want to get divorced. Many. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've had cases that really didn't hit the gas pedal for about eight, nine years. They would come and have a consultation. Then they would go. And then they'd say, let me think about that. Then they come again. They would, then they would wait for maybe a child to reach a certain age because, for example, I, this is one of the things I learned being a matrimonial lawyer, is that um, many, and I'm just going to be gender specific about it because it's, it was true at the time, and this is one of the things that's changed over the years, um, many men would stay in relationships and marriages that maybe they didn't want to necessarily be in because they wanted to live with their children. And the way the courts worked, uh, chances were that they would get alternate weekends or Wednesday night dinners. It meant not living with their children, not waking up with them and going to bed with them and doing their homework. And it would be a change of life. So they, they wait. And sometimes they would come and see me over the years until the child was in high school or until. But one of the changes that I, Stacy and I have both seen um, is because uh, the custody orders are much more egalitarian and equal for the most part. For the most part, you have to have a reason that there won't be joint custody or that there won't be shared custody. It makes it easier for people to separate when they want to without fearing a loss of being with their children. And this is a great example of doing this for a long time when uh, Bonnie and I started practicing in California for the non-normal custodial parent, often the dad. It was every other weekend, as Bonnie said, and one night for dinner. You could define a weekend Friday to Sunday, Friday to Monday, Saturday to Sunday. It could be one night for dinner, generally Wednesday night or an overnight. Um, oh, 10, 15 years ago, it became that the presumption that the judges started with was 50-50, and then you deviated from that presumption, which meant more people had more equal custodial arrangements, which affects them moving out of the house or not moving out of the house. The only hiccup with that is how soon you could get to court. And we've gone through different times where getting to court was sooner rather than later. And with COVID, it's later. I was curious too, with millennial parents, are you seeing more fathers that are asking for 50-50? I think at one point there was a sense as well, children should be with their mother and I'll respect that. But now- No tender age doctrine anymore. We're very clear. There is no tender age presumption. And it's been that way for most of the time that I've been practicing. However, 
even with that statement for many years when I first started practicing, it was still sort of the way judges did things and no more, absolutely no more. Some of my favorite clients over the years have been dads who were the primary caregivers. And that was during a time where that was not usual. Sometimes what's hard about that, though, is, you know, <laughs> children aren't cookie cutter, right? I mean, they, they are different and they have different needs. And a lot of times the courts don't have the ability to necessarily distinguish between maybe a child that needs a home base or a baby that really does have um, a need to be with one of the parents, whoever that parent might be, or a particular schedule. So it's become a little cookie cutter to the other extreme, which is sometimes hard on, on young children. Actually, it's sometimes it's hard on teenagers who actually have a harder time often going from house to house than younger children. It's interesting to see. Are you finding that both parties tend to be in agreement, tend to agree that we're going to do this, we're going to share custody and it will be 50-50 or it tends to still be a fight and they both don't want it? It's generally because it's a fight. The ones that agree to it um, don't hire us. And maybe they hire us for the finances, but for the most part, um, if you can agree, you don't need us. They probably went to mediation. Mm. And are you finding that for, if you do go to mate, for you get a lot of clients who started with mediation and didn't work? Do you see that much? We do. And, and sometimes what we try to do is um, facilitate the mediation because they just need often an advocate in the mediation because they're not necessarily great at doing it themselves. We have something called, which I think Stacy does too, uh, collaborative law, where parties into, enter, enter into an agreement where they have particular lawyers and they're committed to, those, to the process of collaborative law so that it's a mediation process. And if one of them steps out, then they have to change the, the lawyer. They can't keep the lawyer that they have. That's part of the the contract. Um, so that can be helpful. And then, so sometimes we get cases that come out of collaborative law because it fell apart. Or uh, doing collaborative law and within collaborative law, you can still do mediation. Um, there's two basic types of mediation, the kind that I think you're referring to where people go to mediators and generally the lawyers are not there. They may be consulting. Um, and sometimes people feel they would do better if their lawyers were there. And instead of bringing their lawyers, they blow up the mediation. The other type, which um, I do the most uh, regularly, and I've done it with Bonnie um, on the same side, is you do enough homework so that you can be prepared to resolve things, not as much homework as you would do to take the case to trial, and you hire either a family law lawyer, mediator, or more likely a retired judge, and spend a day or two or three or five, whatever it is, to bang out a settlement. Uh, and the lawyers and the accountants and everybody's there. Um, been a little different during COVID where most of it is done by Zoom or in the pockets when we were allowed to be around each other, somewhere in person, somewhere by Zoom. Um, Bonnie and I uh, have done Zooms together, depots, Zooms together, mediation Zooms. We've done hearings where we've all been there. We've done hearings where I was there and because it's here in LA and she was uh, by Zoom or by um, phone before our courthouse had video conferences. So we've done it all, all different ways. You just got to make it work. And you should see our text blow up if we're you know, on the screens because we can't talk to each other past notes. It's like 
pretty interesting. <laughs> There's a lot of multitasking <laughs> going on. A lot of multitasking. And are you guys, I, I should have asked this earlier. So this, you guys are representing the same client, right? You're not across the table from each other. Are you seeing, uh, because of, like you said, you do Zoom depths now and Zoom hearings. Are you seeing more people in different states working together for one client in family law than maybe you did before? Because it's easier now. Not just states, but internationally. I, oh, I, wow. it has been shocking. If, if, if any, that's been the biggest change of all, at least from my practice. I, um, I have cases in multiple states and in multiple countries. And um, it makes it interesting and easy because all you have to do is put on your computer and you're there. And, and it's been fantastic. Um, in some ways, it's a little odd because I find I've met someone, I, as I've had a consultation, I represent them, I do a hearing for them, we have multiple uh, meetings over Zoom, and I realize I've never met them I had a client walk in here that I was representing for about eight months. I had no idea he was so tall. <laughs> I had no idea. So it's, it's interesting that you could have that kind of intimacy, you know, professional intimacy with, with a client and realize that you don't even necessarily, uh, you've never met them in person. I have a client who I did meet before the lockdown. The divorce is happening here but he lives in Beijing and he has been on lockdown there. They don't have the same um, vaccines that we have. And if you leave there, the quarantine period to go back in is very long. So he hasn't been able to come here for depositions or for hearings. And we've had tons of mediations and tons of meetings all by Zoom, which their day and night is the flip side of us. So we're either working really late or in mediation, he's up all night with a business lawyer from Hong Kong who's up all night. And we're here and we have experts around the country. It's bizarre, but actually it's workable. And I know one of the questions you were thinking about, Stephanie, is like, is this, are certain things going to last? Stacey, I want you to pause that thought. Let's talk about pandemic changes in family law that you think are here for the long term after we come back from break. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, 
collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm discussing family law and how it's changed with Stacey Phillips, a partner with Los Angeles's Blank Rome, and Bonnie Rabin, who's with New York's Rabin, Schumann, and Partners. So Stacey, as you mentioned before we cut to break, I, I am curious, what are some changes from the pandemic in family law that you think will stick with us? For the long term, whenever this thing ends. Uh, or if it just morphs into something else, I'm not yeah. sure it's going to end. And that's exactly why some of the tools that we've now used will continue. I think um, many people will do video conference um, for hearings. I have one of my colleagues who said to me, if I ever have to walk in the courthouse again, it's, you know, the last day in hell. Um, <laughs> and so it, it, this, it's really nice. I had to do one hearing, though, before we had video conference from 830 in the morning to 430 in the afternoon. My opposition was present with the his client. My client was in an airport in Minnesota. My associate was in New York. I was here. I couldn't see. I could barely hear. Thank God for video conference since then. So I think that's here to stay. I think lots of meetings and depositions especially with people around the country and around the world, will be done more by video conference. Um, and I hope that the animosity and the failure to get to a solution point will ebb and go away because the tensions are so heightened here. And the resolutions that most of us as lawyers and judges know what the re resolution should be. Generally speaking, we're within a band, but we can't get them there. You know, Bonnie and I worked for three years trying to get this couple who had a child together to resolve domestic violence, to resolve custody, resolve support, resolve fees. We were the first case in L.A. when the courthouse reopened. We had 11 days of trial and Bonnie flew out. But so that maybe had to have been. But if we had settled the whole case we would have handled it differently. We had to go to court for child support. We had to go to court for some of the fee hearings. Eventually we resolved custody, but that was part of the DV trial. So it didn't have to be that way. And that's just one of many. I think the concept of forum nonconvenience is probably gone, right? I mean, what forum is inconvenient? All you have to do is open up your, your computer and you're, you can be anywhere. I have multiple hearings now dealing with that, and I think the courts are still going to rely on their rules, but it's much more fluid. So I want to ask you about your 11-day trial in L.A. when the courts opened up. This was uh, obviously it was a bench trial. Were you masked? What were the rules? Oh, yes. We were very much masked. How was it standing up at the podium and talking in a mask? It was the first time that 
we were in a situation where we had to do that. So it was new to everyone, the court reporter, the judge, the bailiff, everyone. Um, and there were also partitions put up right away. So, But a week after a week. So each time we'd go in for a few days later, there'd be a new partition. Yeah. yeah. It's also very odd to wash your hands when you have gloves on. Um, that didn't last very long. I finally took the gloves off. I, I bought what shields. Shields. shields for everybody. And the judge really liked it because she could see people's eyes and their mouths. But then she realized that the sound dropped. There were times we were wearing both. We were testing them both. It was, I remember at one point, the judge speaking, I said, I can't hear you. It was hard and frustrating, but we were all in it together. So we just sort of held hands, so to speak, even though you're not allowed to hold hands. And this was before <laughs> anyone was doing Zoom actual hearings. So we were a, a little bit pioneering because we just added one of the witnesses by Zoom and projected it on the screen. And it was, I mean, now that's done as a matter of course. In fact, now for the first time, I really can be in two places at once. In the fall, I was asked to come down to court on a, in Manhattan in a, on a proceeding. But at the same time, I was expected to be in Kings County in Brooklyn on another proceeding. So I asked the judge if I could just be on my laptop for the one hearing, and then I would close the laptop and appear in the other hearing. And I really was in two places at once. It's quite amazing. So you were physically in one courthouse and appearing remotely Correct. on another. Yes. So how is, I don't know in terms of if your level of practice, how often you guys are still in the court or would be in the courthouses for motions call. But, you know, I'm sure for some clients you would be there yes. for their motions call. How, I mean, I would think that the remote hearings would be fabulous. I love that. As opposed to trying to cut through like Sensory City, then to downtown L.A., then maybe to pass. I mean, I, love them. I, I would think it would be so much easier. They're efficient. They're so much more efficient. There's no time wasted. The, forget, sh- pardon me, schlepping down with 50 boxes to the courthouse. It's it's probably three or four hours of transportation back and forth and packing up before, by the time you're finished. Here, you have your set hours. You start at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. You end at 4.30. There's an hour break. All the exhibits, for the most part, are uploaded ahead of time. Um, I love the cross-examination when you insist that the witness is not is on speaker um, view. So you are right in their face asking a question, which I really has think has been extremely effective. I wouldn't have thought that, but it works beautifully. So I I I, I enjoy it very much. I think it's great for clients. I'm sure there's the rare case where it would be better to be together, maybe because the judge has an opportunity to try to settle things. But I think to, even judges are learning to do that a little bit differently. So we conference. So we go to breakout rooms. We work it out. But it's much more efficient. What do you think, Stacey? I sort of evolved there. Um, when Bonnie and I were in court and then we had hearings afterwards where she'd be in New York and on the phone because there was no video conference then. I kept going to court and thinking that was best for our client. I was the only one of our side and our client was on the phone. There was, you know, a gazillion people on the other side. And one hearing I did, because one of my partners has a an infant and you can't um, vaccinate an infant. So I literally went to court, somewhat like a potted plant, to be there with our client so she wasn't alone with the other side against her physically. 
very hard to keep your mouth shut when my partner's arguing because it's her case. Since then, when things got bad again, I started to do them all by video conference. I always ask the client, and I've had many hearings where the other side is there physically and we're by video conference. And I really don't want to go back to the courthouse again. As Bonnie said, the schlep, I don't want to be in the courthouse. It's It scares me uh, from a medical standpoint, uh, but it is, there's a certain efficiency by doing it this way. I don't know where it's going to go, but I think video conference in large part is here to stay, and I'm grateful for that. I did have a funny moment of terror, though, once. Last August, I argued, I had an argument in the uh, Court of Appeals of Michigan. And obviously, I would have had to fly out there, and, but now it was being done by remote. So um, I was in my apartment, got up early, as you usually do when you're prepping for your oral argument, even though you're very prepped in any event. And as I was looking at everything, um, at my dining room table, the lights started to flicker. And this is an, an, an apartment in Manhattan. And I thought, no. And then I thought, it flickered again. I thought, how could this be? The lights went out. And I looked out my window to the left, blackness. I looked to the right. I saw a little light maybe downtown. It was a very scary moment. I thought, what am I going to do? If we have a blackout in New York and I'm supposed to have a court of appeals argument in three hours, I guess I have to get in my car and do it on my, and just drive around and do it on my phone. <laughs> Fortunately, they went back on about 45 minutes later, but it was a terrorizing moment. So that's a, a possible problem, but a rare one. I think everybody's had that because we've had such crazy weather. <laughs> Too. I mean, I remember trying to file the story with a tornado, a tornado warning. And we actually had a tornado that went down the street. And I'm in the basement typing away. Oh, my biggest fear is for every argument that I screw up um, technologically. It's scary. Every time. Even today, just connecting with you, I'm going, okay, I'm going to screw up and I'm going to miss this. Someone's going to do a very good book or article about all of these stories I had um, immunologist that I was examining, cross-examining, and he was at his place at the beach someplace. And in the middle of the hearing, he said, I'm sorry, I, I have to go because they, we knew that was, they were, they were like gale warnings. He, he said his uh, patio furniture was flying across the room and he, outside and he had to go out and get it. So, but all in all, I think it's, it's much better all the way around. What are you finding with, I don't know if client control is the right word, but I don't know if another way to say it, but to keep your client in line at a hearing, how do you do that when they're on? You can't like whisper in your ear, hey, maybe you shouldn't say that. You could send them a text, I guess, but how do you, um, how do you keep them at their best? I prefer that they're here with me. I even had one in my apartment recently because I had to be in my apartment. I had her come to my apartment. Even if I can just give that look across laptop to laptop or computer to laptop. You can go like this over the table. (laughs) (laughs) My eyes can say a lot. (laughs) In an argument, I mean, when they're being examined, you can't text. You're not allowed to. I have not had anybody in my house nor in my office, but I I have watched Bonnie do that uh, (laughs) with somebody sitting next to her. Well, so Stacey, how do you uh, make sure clients are presenting their best selves? And talk about it in advance and pray. And there have been hearings where <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, uh, you, you know better than that. But 
they're going to do that even if I'm sitting with them in a courthouse. People act out. And they yeah. know better, especially clients who are lawyers know better. Yeah. Well, a, a few times <laughs> the, the um, Judge DiFiori, our, our uh, chief judge, had to set out some um, reminders for lawyers and witness preparation that people, even though it's a virtual situation, people should still be in a professional, <laughs> act in a professional manner and be in a professional place. Because, you know, we've all had the stories of, you know, lawyers in their messy bedrooms and other, other such things. I did have a case recently where a woman was uh, a, lay, a lay witness. So it's a different situation. As the, as the video opened up, her TV was on in the background, but you didn't hear anything. Okay. I saw the coffee cup on her table. Okay. But in the middle of giving her testimony, she suddenly lit up a cigarette and you could see the lawyers and the judge. We were all looking at each other like, do we say something? Should something be said? And then finally the judge said, um, excuse me, ma'am, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I realize that you're in your home and it's unusual, but this is still a courtroom. And could you please put the cigarette out? I mean, that's unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> I've heard that story before about smoking in front of a judge. Yeah, not not your story, but yeah. that probably happens in, to the extent people still smoke. What do you find, what do your clients like? Um, do they like to be virtual or would they rather be in person? And how does it figure in with that, sometimes that human need of wanting to be heard in family law? Most, I think, are appreciate the virtual, but I've done mediations towards the end of last year before Omicron, where a client has said, I'd really like to go in person. So I've gone and the rest of my team has been by virtual because I'm not going to push any of my partners, associates to show up in person if that's not their comfort level. Um, we had a mediation recently that we wanted to have in person, at least for some of us. Uh, and my opposing counsel cares for her elderly parents. And she, I went with her flow whatever she wanted. My client was in New York, but I thought in person, I would get to meet the other side. And I thought we can communicate better, but she didn't want to be there in person. So I was going to respect that. Um, so I've done lots of um, mishmashes in one mediation. I was there with uh, part of my team and my client and the entire other side was virtual from New York to the Bay Area to LA. Uh, and I would go into that room and stare at the screen with the judge and go back to my room with people. It was odd, but we made it work. You just gotta respect people's preferences. Yeah. I was curious too, with technology, there's so much we can do now as well as so often we're working from our homes and we're working all the time. How do you guys go about, have you changed how you keep boundaries in place? Boundaries? Yeah, in terms of reserving there time are no boundaries. for yourself. <laughs> in 2020, it's an example. Yeah. I didn't know what was Saturday or Sunday. We worked every day, all day, all night. Clients now, they don't have boundaries for Saturdays and Sundays. Retired judges who we do a lot of our work with have no boundaries for Saturday or Sunday. And if God forbid I want to establish a boundary and I'm not real good at it, I feel like a heel. Uh, but it's also not healthy because uh, not that I want to talk, but I try to listen to myself when I get smart sometimes. And we're better lawyers and we're better clients and we're better judges 
if we are, if you take a breath. Yeah, true. I, yeah, and, and clients really do expect you to be available to them at all times. It's, it's, it, it is one of the issues, especially in family law, because things happen on the weekend. Or I, I once had a client who, uh, she would just send me emails every, every five. I, I would get 40, 50, 60 a day throughout the day. And finally, I said to her, if you just, just keep one email going, and then at the end of the day, unless it's an emergency, send me the one email with all your thoughts. I'm happy to read them, but it's the being peppered that makes it a little harder to, to address other people and other cases and other, other issues. So COVID has just made it far worse. Our profession is such that people need to communicate, feel they need to communicate, but there used to be some boundaries except for an emergency. Now there are no boundaries. Will you guys text with clients or it's still on email? <laughs> We're not supposed to in my firm, but all the time. Yeah. Stacy knows that I'm, I'm, you have the other anti-vaxxers. I'm an anti-texter and it, okay. and it's, and it's not just my age. It really is because I don't, I can get a thousand emails or phone calls or anything else, but because texts are so difficult, there's so much more work because then you have to keep them for billing purposes or for ethical purposes or for filing purposes or for organizing purpose. So if the client just writes to me or, or another, a lawyer just writes to me, I then have to forward it to my email. Then I have to put it in a folder. And maybe there's three people on that chain. Maybe there's four people on that chain. It's just too disjointed and makes it, it, it's just a time killer, frankly, and it's just not worth it. So if they just email, I know who's on the email. I forward, I file. It just makes a lot more sense. So I'm, uh, so I make it clear. They don't listen. And if your phone's gone I, now, obviously with the cloud and, 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 you know, you can, you can, you can obviously upload your texts and they, they're kept on the cloud. But before that, if you lost your phone, your texts were gone. So that was uh, a, a complicated time. So, but I still don't want it for all the reasons I've said. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. That's everything I had to ask both of you today. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank oh, you. It's been our pleasure. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals, Asked and Answered.